Good morning, and welcome to another episode of Crime Over Coffee. We're your host. I'm Abby. And I'm Erica. Today, I'm going to be telling you guys about Eileen Warnos. So pour yourself some coffee and let's dive on in. Warnos was born as Eileen Carol Pittman on February 29th, 1956 in Rochester, Michigan. Her mom and dad had separated prior to her birth, and her dad, Leo Pittman, ended up spending multiple years in a mental hospital for child molestation. I read also that he spent time in prison, so I don't know if it was both or if it was just the mental hospital, but it was like a sentencing like prison. Yeah, there's some overlaps that can happen there. So while he was incarcerated or staying at the mental hospital, however you want to look at it, he did end up killing himself. Her mother, Diane Pratt, ended up abandoning Eileen and her brother Keith in the early 60s when Eileen was just four years old. And she just left them at their grandparents' house, which doesn't sound too terrible, except for the fact that the grandmother was an alcoholic and the grandfather was physically and sexually abusive. I mean, it all sounds horrible. This just is Even not... Even prior to that, it all sounds horrible. Yeah, the whole thing, just not good. Not a good recipe. At six years old, she ended up suffering from facial burns and some scarring because her and her brother Keith had set some fires with lighter fluid. And then around 14 years of age, Eileen ended up pregnant with her son and gave birth on March 23rd, 1971. This child was given up for adoption. She was, did not keep it. But it's kind of unknown who the father is. There's some speculation. Maybe the grandfather. Yeah. Maybe a friend of the grandfather's. Because it was not just the grandfather who was taking advantage of her. There's also speculation that it was her brother Keith's. So we're seeing a trend where men in her life are not comforting. Absolutely. All the men in her life, I think, kind of, it's just a bad image of all of them at this point. And I mean, she's 14 years old and everything I just mentioned to you has happened to her already. Some people don't even go through all this in their entire life. It's just awful. Shortly after the child was born, her grandmother ended up passing away and her grandfather told her and Keith that they just needed to leave. He, He was done. He didn't want them around. So this was, you know, middle school time and Eileen started to lose her hearing and have vision problems and she was having a lot of trouble in school. So they did an IQ test and it was established at 81 and it kind of turns into intellectual disabilities at about an IQ of like 70 to 75. So she was kind of right on that line and she wasn't doing well. So she was a ward of the court just kind of on her own. She ended up dropping out of school and at the ripe age of 15 became a prostitute. And then in 1974, around the age of 18, she actually went to prison for driving while intoxicated and for firing a gun from a moving vehicle. After this, she was arrested for multiple charges, including armed robbery, check forgery, auto theft, just, you know, name it, she got it. Just a long list of crimes. In the early 80s, Keith ends up passing away from cancer. And so she moves to Florida. And there she gets in trouble a lot for prostitution, illegal possession of a firearm, more forgery, assault, robbery. She's hitting all the markers. Every crime. And then in 1986, Eileen meets a 24-year-old woman, Tyria Moore. So she's about 30 at this time. And she meets this girl at a bar in Daytona Beach, Florida. 
And they immediately have a connection and pretty quickly start dating. And together, they kind of went around and committed a bunch of crimes together. I mean, everything that I mentioned before, they were doing together. And they were using fake names, disguises, changing everything up just so that they wouldn't be caught. And they would steal things from people and then they would sell them at pawn shops to get money. Which, we, I mean, we've seen before. So I'm sure a lot of you guys have heard of Eileen. So I'm just going to kind of just go into it. She had this pattern that she would do where she would flag men down who were driving alone on the interstate 75, offer them sex for money, and then shoot them and kill them. Which, as we mentioned, she has a bad longstanding pattern with men abusing her. So it's not at all surprising that she's targeting these men who are doing sexual acts with her. Like, I assume that's triggering for her. It probably is. And so that's she decided that she was going to take it into her own hands and she was just going to kill them. There are a couple different victims. I'm going to go through them with you guys. A kind of a little bit of a scenario about each of the incidents. I actually do have a little tidbit story about this case that I could tell you about here in a little bit. But I'm going to wait until we go through the victims and then I'll tell you guys. Okay. So the first victim we're going to talk about is kind of her big victim. This is the one that, like, if you think of Eileen, you typically think of him. And it's because he was mainly the reason she ended up getting caught. So Richard Mallory was 51 years old, and he was an electronics shop owner. On December 1st, 1989, his vehicle was found abandoned by a deputy. And then his body was later found on December 13th, multiple miles away, just in a wooded area. He had been shot several times and two of the bullets have gone straight to his left lung and that caused hemorrhaging and that was his cause of death. So then did she murder him somewhere else and then drive his vehicle to a different location? Because I can't imagine she was able to carry him. <laughs> I Yeah, I don't think you'd be able to, but somehow she was able to dispose of his body out there. The next victim was David Spears, who was about 43 years old and he was a construction worker his body was found on June 1st, 1990, along Highway 19. And the only thing that he was wearing was a baseball cap. Did they ever find his clothes? Not that I know of. But he died from six bullet wounds to the torso. It's all pointing to a lot of rage, too. It's, there's some overkill happening. Absolutely. I mean, really, you can kill somebody with one shot. And we've got one where it was multiple bullets, and then this one was six. And we've got another one. We got 40-year-old Charles Karskadden, sorry if I mispronounced that name, who was a part-time rodeo worker. And his body was found June 6, 1990, so just five days later. And they found nine bullets in his lower chest and upper abdomen. So we went from multiple to six to nine. And, you know, during this time frame, do investigators have any idea who might be involved? They No, they have no idea. And in fact, I don't even think they knew that they had a serial killer on their hands. I think they just, because it was multiple different counties. So I think they just kind of had these murders occurring, didn't know what was happening necessarily. And then we've got 50-year-old Troy Barres, who was a sausage salesman. And he was reported missing July 31st, 1990. And then on August 4th, his body was found in a wooded area along State Road 19. And I haven't named all the counties yet, but we've got Volusia County, Citrus County, Pasco County, and Marion County so far. So we've got four victims, four different counties. Is she still with her girlfriend at this time? Yes. So is she assisting in any of these? 
No. And she claims she has no idea about any of the murders. Okay. She said that she just agreed to like some of the other little petty crimes, Mm -hmm. the robbing and all that, but she did not know about the murders. It seemed to be Eileen was just doing this on her own, which kind of makes sense because a lot of it stems from that childhood trauma. Right. So, like I said, this um, Troy, he was in Marion County. He was found multiple days after he had gone missing. And his body was pretty much decomposed at that point that he was found. But they were able to determine that he'd been shot twice. And that was the cause of death. The next victim is 56-year-old Charles Humphreys, who went by Dick. And he was a Air Force major. He was a retired Air Force major, a former police chief. And a Florida state child abuse investigator. And his body was found in Marion County. So now we've got two counties. He is significantly different than the kind of profile of the other men. Absolutely. And he was found on September 12th, 1990. His body was fully clothed. He'd been shot six times in the head and torso. But his car was found in Sewanee County. So we've got another county coming in. His body was found in the same county as Troy, but... The mystery has been solved. Here at Crime Over Coffee, our go-to caffeinated beverage for every episode is Fire Department Coffee. And you can get some as well and save 15% with our exclusive coupon code CRIMEPOD15. Owned and operated by firefighters and veterans, 10% of all their proceeds go directly to helping sick and injured first responders. And with an incredible range of flavors and caffeine strength, it's a company that all of us can easily support. So please go to firedeptcoffee.com and use our coupon code CRIMEPOD15 to support us, support them, help first responders, and get some incredibly tasty coffee along the way. So real quick, and I'm sorry if I'm getting ahead of you, they're confident that all these can be connected to her? There is only one that they're pretty sure, Mm -hmm. but they don't have actual, they've not officially connected it to her, and I've not mentioned him yet. Okay. I just was curious because that one, that last one just seemed a little different. Yeah. The next guy is 62-year-old Walter Gino Antonio, and his body was found on November 19th, 1990 in Dixie County. So we got another county added. His body was nearly nude, and he'd been shot four times in the back and in the head. They then found his car five days later in Brevard County. So she's using these vehicles to move around. Absolutely. And she's pretty smart about it. She's got all of these counties in it. She's got six victims so far and seven counties that she's already been in. Is she using the same gun? Yes. She's using, I believe, a twenty-two caliber gun throughout all this. The next victim is the one where they're not able to officially connect her, which I don't understand why they can't connect this one to her. But it is Peter Seams. He was 65. And in June of 1990, he left from Jupiter, Florida to go to New Jersey. And his car was later found in Orange Springs on July 4th. And witnesses came forward and said that they had seen two girls leaving the car from where it was disposed. And they were able to identify these girls as Tyria and Eileen. Okay, so we at least know that Tyria is involved in a sense. She's in a victim's car, whether or not she knows where the car came from. She has to know that it's not Eileen's vehicle. Yes. I think the reason that it's not officially connected is because his body has never been found. Oh, interesting. Because the other ones seem like they were found pretty easily. Yeah, within, I mean, days typically of the car being found, but the missing day is always a little different. That's interesting. I wonder, though, if there is like swamps in this area or the oceans in that area, obviously. We said Florida. I think there's a lot of disposal areas around there. I'm sure there is. So 
what they find on this vehicle that they were able to then connect to Eileen is there's a palm print on the interior door handle that matched Eileen. So they were able to conclusively verify that it was her in that vehicle. But they didn't officially connect her to his disappearance, like in court. They didn't. Yeah, they didn't connect her to his murder because his body's never been found. Right. But also it could have just been she found this car and stole it. I mean, it's on trend Mm -hmm. that likely she was involved. But I mean, obviously not enough to prove it admissible in court. So was that all her victims? Yes, that's all the victims we know about. There's this podcast I listen to. It's called Radio Rental. It's a beautiful podcast. I really recommend it, but it's people telling different stories. And there is one on there where this guy, he works at a gas station with his dad. So he's like a teenager at the time. And they see this lady walking up to the gas station and she's clearly kind of like a little out there. She's doing weird things and acting odd. And she asked for a ride somewhere. And I guess this had happened before. And like in past times, the dad would have been like, oh, yeah, like drive someone over here, you know. But this time the dad was like, no, we can't help you. And she's all mad and leaves. And then like a couple days later, they see her on the news and it was Eileen. Oh, so he just like barely missed it. Like, I mean, likely he would have been killed as well. And I think that's so creepy to like have this near miss. That happens so often. Mm -hmm. There's another one and it might be on the same podcast. Another one where there was like this girl just narrowly misses getting like murdered by the serial killer that they then catch later. And I can't even imagine like that is a second chance at life. I have a friend whose grandfather met John Wayne Gacy. Oh. And John Wayne Gacy asked him to model for him and he turned him down. Ooh. So it happens a lot. It's creepy. Right. Well, I mean, statistically, it has to. There has to be so many people out there. And maybe it's like they don't even know that they were approached by, you know, someone creepy. Like how many times, even if you just go on like Craigslist or you get these weird emails and messages like I have this job for you, like blah, blah, blah. And it's like, no, I don't think so. I don't think I'm going to go down that path. Or there was that knife company. Remember in high school? <laughs> yeah. People would get contacted by this knife company all the time. And I was like, I mean, they were sketch. They were a legit company. I know people who have worked for them. It still sounded sketchy. But it's, you know, it's like where someone's reaching out to you. The other day I got a message or an email. I think it was an email. And it was like, hi, my name's so-and-so. I saw your profile on. And it was like some website where you like fill out things to do like little side jobs, which I haven't filled out and but it was like i'll pay you this much to do some personal work and i was like no (laughs) no 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 and i was like i don't know how they got my name and number but no (laughs) so both tyria and eileen were seen leaving the car after they had been in a car accident and that was how the witnesses identified them so to go with the evidence that we have against eileen Police were able to trace things that had been stolen from Richard Mallory back to Eileen. So there was a camera that had been taken from his vehicle and it was found inside a rented warehouse unit. And when police went to go look in that unit, they were able to find Eileen and ask her questions and then take a key from Eileen to the unit and open it up. So she had rented this unit under an alias. And when they were looking in the storage unit, they were able to find multiple things from the victims. They also were able to trace a bunch of things that had been stolen from Richard's vehicle to different pawn shops that Eileen had contacted or been to, once again, using aliases. In January 1991, Eileen was arrested while she was outside of a biker bar in Harbor Oaks, Florida. 
at this time, she had a warrant out for arrest. I mean, they pretty much knew they'd found all this evidence, so they were looking for her. And once they had her, they tracked down Tyria. And because of this, they were able to get a confession from Eileen about the murders because they were kind of threatening that they were going to pin a lot of it on Tyria kind of thing. So like I said, Eileen did confess at this point. And in a four-hour video confession that had been taped, there's a quote from Eileen saying, quote, I had to kill them. It's like I'm thinking, you bastards, you were going to hurt me. It was self-defense. It was like, hey, man, I got to shoot you because I think you're going to kill me, end quote. I mean, it all just points back probably to her psyche and the issue she had, because I doubt that all of them were planning to kill her. Maybe there was an instance where it was aggressive. I don't know. The whole situation she created is all dicey on all ends. There's no way you're doing self-defense that many times. <laughs> you, Yeah, absolutely. I mean, but that's what she decides is going to be her stance. It was all self-defense. And police were kind of like, really? <laughs> is that what you want to go with? Plus, every time she retold the story... It changed. Uh. It was never consistent, which that's always a telltale sign. For example, one of the stories that she changed is originally she said when she had met Richard, he had picked her up because she was hitchhiking. And then they went into a secluded wooded area to engage in, quote, an act of prostitution. But they started arguing and she thought that he was going to take her money and rape her. So she grabbed her bag where her gun was and they started fighting over the bag and she pointed at him and said, quote, you son of a bitch. I know you were going to rape me, end quote. And apparently Richard was like, no, no, I wasn't. And then she shoots him. Not that she needs a defense, but if you want to look at it in a sensitive way, she was hurt and raped by a lot of men. So it doesn't make it okay by any means, but you can understand why that's her thought process. Maybe she truly believed that. And that's possible. In this story of hers, she said that she shot Richard at least once while he was still sitting behind the steering wheel is what she said at some point. But also it happened while they were in the middle of the woods. It was kind of like all over the place. And then she said that she crawled out the driver's side, shut the car door, and then ran around to the front and shot him again. He was apparently out of the car at this point and he fell to the ground so none of it's adding up no not at all and then while he was laying there she shot him twice more and then went through his pockets took some stuff and drove off in his car she also apparently did not ever tell tyria about it and had told her a bunch of different stories as well saying that she had found the body hidden and taken his car but then apparently she also maybe confessed to it to tyria She's all over the place. She doesn't have a straight answer. She doesn't have anything that is concrete or really makes that much sense. She told police that over her years of being a prostitute and ever since she was a child, she had had sex with over 200,000 men. What? Is that even physically possible? I Maybe. That's not my question. My question is how the hell did she remember the number? Yeah. That's a lot of... Like, I... I'm going to guess that was not accurate. It was probably just an assumption, but I don't know. She said that she'd been raped nine times in her years. She had been beaten up and manhandled more times than she could remember. And she ended up just deciding she couldn't take it anymore. So she kind of shifts from back and forth from it's self-defense to, no, I actually killed them. Like, it was just murder. They did find her guilty on all counts. And they charged her with first-degree murder, armed robbery. It took less than two hours to discuss. 
And she yells some angry things, which we're actually going to play a clip for you in a few minutes. And I'll let I'll let you hear it from her. And the next day was actually going to be the sentencing day. So they bring in the state's expert psychologist, Dr. Bernard is his name. And he testified that Eileen suffered from borderline personality disorder and antisocial personality disorder. He said that he agrees with other experts that she experienced an impaired capacity and mental disturbance at the time of the crime. But he said that this impairment was not substantial and the disturbance was not extreme. Based on all of this evidence, the jury ends up recommending the death sentence for her by a vote of 12 to 0. And they concluded that there were five aggravating circumstances and only one mitigating factor that were present in her case. So the five aggravating circumstances found were that she had previously had a felony conviction involving the use or threat of violence. Murder was committed during the commission of a robbery. Murder was committed in order to avoid arrest. Murder was heinous, atrocious, or cruel. And murder was cold, calculated, and premeditated. The only mitigating factor that they had was the fact that she suffered from the borderline personality disorder. She only stood the trial once. She pled guilty to the murder charges. And like I said, she was charged with first degree murder and sentenced to death. So I am going to play a video for you guys. It's just a short little clip from the trial when it was over and she had received her sentence. I have made peace with my Lord and I have asked forgiveness. I am sorry that my acts of self-defense ended up in court like this, but I take full responsibility for my actions. It was them or me. I am sorry for all the pain that my actions have caused. I am prepared to die if you say it is necessary. By pleading guilty, it appeared that Lee Warnos was in reality hoping for mercy and forgiveness, but that is not what happened. I sentence you in case number 91-463 to death for the murder of Troy Burris. Case number 91-304, I sentence you to death for the murder of Charles Humphreys. Case number 91-112, Citrus County case number, I sentence you to death for the murder of David Spears. Thank you. And uh, probably see, uh, I'll be up in heaven while y'all are rotting in hell. Okay, there will be an automatic appeal. You have the right to an appeal. Mr. Glazer, is that going to be handled by you May or the public defender? your wife and kids uh, get raped. I would ask that uh, you would appoint right the public the defender's ass. office. Okay, I will appoint the public defender's office uh, to handle the appeal. There's one other thing that I want to say that I think needs to be said. I know I was raped, and you weren't nothing but a bunch of scum. Therefore, these proceedings are now Putting completed. somebody who was raped right, to death? So, Abby, I just showed you the video. What are your thoughts? Um, yeah, it was actually kind of creepy to see her and to see I was watching. So I saw it. But for you guys to hear her in the beginning kind of say something like really like timid, like she's accepting responsibility and was clearly just to try to get out of getting the death penalty, which she obviously got and did not react well. So for me listening to it, when the judge says we're sentencing you to death, it just like this wave of I don't even know. Like, it just feels so weird. Like, I can't imagine sitting there and just hearing you're being sentenced to death. I thought of it, too, from his perspective. Like, I can't imagine being the person that hands that out. Oh, no. I don't want that job. Uh, uh, no. That's too much. I do know there's, like, 
a documentary on Netflix about her that I've always been interested in watching, but just haven't got around to it. Maybe this will inspire me to go check it out. There's multiple documentaries about her and a movie. Yeah. There's just the one on Netflix that keeps popping up on the like recommended for you. You should watch this. Well, maybe you should. So throughout this whole process, she had repeatedly fired her lawyers. I mean, she and got new lawyers over and over and over again. And it wasn't any different after she was sentenced to death. She continued to constantly change all of her legal team and everybody who was helping her. And after her trial, a friend, quote unquote, I I don't know if they've ever even met in person. I think it was just this girl had seen Eileen on TV and was like, I feel drawn to her. I need to help her. And so her name was Arlene Prale. And she felt like she was told to take care of Eileen and that Jesus had told her to write to Eileen and to like kind of become friends and kind of help her through the situation. I feel like that happens a lot. Maybe not like the part about Jesus telling her to talk to her, but you definitely get people who want to communicate with these serial killers. And it's very interesting. Like, how do you how do you get there, I wonder? I, I don't know. I've never felt the urge to write to a serial killer. You know, I've thought about it. Not in like a supporting way, but like there's so much psychology behind that. I would be very interested to hear like firsthand from somebody. Yes, but I think with some of the psychology behind it, they're not going to admit to much. No. You're not going to get much You're going to get more from like analyzing it yourself than what they're going to say. Either way, the relationship between Eileen and Arlene didn't last very long. So there's a whole bunch of money going on. I'm not even going to try to explain it because I don't quite understand. But basically, she was paying lawyers, obviously. But then this money was like going to random places and going to media and going to these interviews and all this stuff. And Eileen decided that Arlene was there for only the publicity and the money and she wasn't kind of interested. So she said in an interview that Arlene was telling her to kill herself in prison. And it was just kind of a whole mess. And that just kind of ended up falling apart in about June of 1992. So she had gone through multiple different trials for the different people. There was one trial where she went for three people, one trial where she just went for one and another. So she, I mean, she just keeps getting sentenced to death. I think she had like five or six death sentences on her. I mean, she always went back to the whole statement that she was raped by them or it was self-defense. And then as you can tell in the clip, you can hear her saying some very awful things to the judge after she's sentenced to these life sentences. And in 1995, she tried to go back and appeal her case. That was denied. And then she was set to be put to death on October 9th, 2002. So on September 30th, 2002, the governor at the time granted a stay of execution Because, which is basically just hold on the execution. We're not putting her to death at the moment. And wanted a mental examination done to determine if she was competent to be executed. Because an inmate cannot be executed unless they understand why they're being sentenced to death and that the execution results in death. So they have to have a mental capacity where they're able to understand that enough. And three psychiatrists examined her and they all concluded that she was competent enough to be executed and the stay was lifted. On October 9th, 2002 was the day that she was supposed to be put to death. She did decline her last meal and she was executed by lethal injection at a Florida state prison and was pronounced dead at 9.47 a.m. Her last statement was, quote, I'd just like to say I'm sailing with the rock and I'll be back like Independence Day with Jesus June 6th. Like the movie Big Mothership and all, I'll be back. What? (laughs) 
Our, uh, your guess is as good as mine. Okay. <laughs> She'll be back like Independence Day. I, I'm not sure. So fun fact, like kind of fun facts for you. She was the 10th woman to be ex- executed in the United States since 1976. I'm actually even surprised it's that high. <laughs> yes, but only the second woman ever executed in Florida. Oh, interesting. That is very interesting. She was also the first woman to fit the FBI's criteria for a serial killer. Yeah, I heard them mention that in the clip before what you guys heard, but they do mention it in the clip. That is very interesting because you know they've been around before that. (laughs) Absolutely. Like Abby and I talked about, there's multiple documentaries about her. There was a movie called Monster that was released in 2003, and Charlize Theron actually plays her in the movie. So if you guys want to check out the movie, you can. Like Abby said, there's a Netflix documentary. You can go check that out. But Abby, I mean, you kind of already said... What is your thought? Do you think she deserved the death penalty? Do you think it was self-defense? Um, uh, No, on the self-defense. I, I could believe that she truly maybe thought it was in her own head. The death penalty, I don't know. I'm still a little, I'm always a little iffy about the death penalty. In this scenario, I can understand that it went that way. It was pretty clear cut that she had murdered all these people. But death penalty for me is an iffy subject i'm just not quite sure where i stand with it okay let us know your guys' thoughts on social media on our instagram you guys can comment on the page and let us know thanks for listening to this week's episode of crime over coffee you can find us on instagram at crime over coffee or on facebook at crime over coffee podcast where all of our photo and video content for each episode can be found If you would like to support us, go to anchor.fm slash crimeovercoffee. You can also join our Patreon family, where you can get early access to our episodes and exclusive content such as our new Monday minis and a bonus monthly episode for as little as a cup of coffee a month. Donations to our podcast are always greatly appreciated and go into making the podcast possible. Other ways to support us include recommending us to friends and family, giving us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts, and subscribing to us on your favorite podcast listening medium. If interested, all of our sources can be found in the show notes of each episode. If you have case suggestions, feel free to reach out through any of our platforms or email at crimeovercoffeepod at outlook.com. Thanks again for listening, and we'll see you in the next episode.